0: Happy Mother's Day. Uh, So thankful for all of you mothers today that are joining with us in worship today. We are so glad that you are here. Uh, Mother's Day is a very special day for uh, so many families, and we're thankful to be a part of that with you. Uh, I I typically uh, do not plan uh, every holiday a special sermon for that specific holiday. Although sometimes in God's providence, even when I have not planned a specific sermon for that, uh, he has planned something already. And that is the case today as we are in a series called The Fall, looking at Genesis 3 through 11. Uh, We have been looking at what has uh, gone wrong with our world, and as we're doing that, we begin to see the hope of God's redemption, even as we see the beginning of how things fell apart. And Mother's Day is a day for many families that is filled with joy and celebration. And and for those of you who are celebrating today, we are joyous to celebrate with you. And then for some, Mother's Day is a much harder day. It's a day where they're reminded of the effects of the fall, where they experience pain, where they experience what we're going to read here in just a few moments about the, the, the pain the fall has caused, whether it's the loss of children or grandchildren or the ability to have children or, or whatever it might be for you. If, if, you're, if this is a hard day for you, we're here to, to celebrate with those who are overjoyed and we are here to mourn with those who mourn. And, and we know that many of you are experiencing all of those kinds of emotions right now. And we are thankful that you are here with us. And, and I pray that today, as we look at God's word together, I pray that he shows us the reasons that we can be filled with joy and the reasons that we have to grieve and the hope that we have of what God is doing and redeeming and restoring all that has gone wrong. And so I hope you will be encouraged today as we look at Genesis chapter 3. I hope you'll turn there and your Bibles with me. Uh, we're going to start in verse 8, and we're going to go down through verse 24 today. And I want to just give you my outline from the get-go so that you can track with me and see where we're going. There's three things we're going to look at today in Genesis chapter 3. The first is that uh, last week we looked at Genesis chapter 3, the first seven verses, and, and how sin entered into the world and where things start to went, start, started to go bad and started to get broken. And, and then today we're going to look at, firstly, our responses to sin. How we tend to respond to sin in our lives. And then secondly, we're going to look at the consequences of our sin And finally, we're going to look at how God deals with our sin and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So look with me at verse 8. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, we've just been studying through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we have uh, seen that God has made the heavens and the earth everything that the eye can see and even the things that it can't, and that God has made all things good. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see uh, this character called the serpent come in, and he tempts Adam and Eve to doubt God's words and to believe different things than God has taught them to believe about their world and themselves and him, and they sin against God God and rebel against him, thinking that their way is better than his, and that they can know wisdom, that they can know what is good and evil without his help. And they rebel against him. They take of the fruit, and they eat, and they reject all of God's good gifts that he's already given to them, and they go their own way. And today, we're going to see some of the fallout from that. Starting in verse 8, here's what we read about our responses to sin. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So there's a few things that we can see just in these first few verses about the ways in which we tend to respond to sin. The first thing that we see is that when we sin, we tend to hide, we hide our sin. If if you look there in verses 8 and 9, that's what Adam does, right? He, He hears God coming. He hears God walking through the garden. He hears the sound of God being present with his people. And instead of running towards God, he runs away from him and he hides from God. We read last week that the initial reaction to sin for Adam and Eve was to make coverings for themselves. They felt ashamed and exposed in their sin before a holy and just God. And so they began to make coverings for themselves to try and hide. And then now they hide even further. And God comes and he asks, where are you? And and it makes me think about when I was a kid. I I, I loved playing with our dogs. We we grew up, and I always grew up with labs. Uh, so I don't know what your favorite dog is, but mine's a lab. I have a lab still this day and and I love her to death. And and as a kid I would go outside most days and I would play with our, our two or three labs that we had in the backyard and, and this one day I was outside and they were kinda of, the dogs were kinda of chasing me around. I was playing with them and I, I picked up this broom that was standing there and, and you know, kinda of to try and keep the dogs away I just kinda of like started, you know, you know, moving it towards them and, and hitting it on the ground and stuff and, and you know, I was having fun and then This one time, I I slammed that broom on the ground to make a loud noise so the dog wouldn't come any closer, and the broom snapped in two. And all of a sudden, I knew I was in trouble, because the broom wasn't mine. And so what did I do? I ran as fast as I could inside the house, downstairs into the basement, and found the most obscure closet in our house, and I hid inside it. And I don't know what I was thinking. I think I was, I was thinking that I could just live in there. You know, I just, I just shut the door, and, and I figured, you know, if, if my dad doesn't find me, then he doesn't find me, and I'll just stay here. And so I shut the door, and, and I hid in there, and I just waited. And I, just, I was just hoping that nobody found me, and no one found out what I did. And, and so many times in life, that's exactly what we do with God. We, we sin against God, we, we, we rebel against him in, in subtle or significant ways, and then we have this initial response to hide from him, just like Adam and Eve did. We, human beings have been hiding from God and their sin from the beginning. We, we all do this in life. See, see, with Adam, we see, this, uh, we see what happens. He, he hides because of his feelings and interpretations. He, how he's seeing the world is the reason that he hides. He, uh, the, the passage says that he, he felt afraid. That's what he tells God in response, right? I, I felt afraid, and so I hid. Well, why does Adam feel afraid? Last week, we talked about how uh, our, our actions are the result of our thoughts and our desires, and, and Adam has this feeling of fear that causes him to run and hide from God because he's believing certain things about himself, his environment, and who God is. You see, Adam hides because he knows that he's exposed in his sin. He knows that, that he is in front of and in the presence of a holy God who is always just, always good, and always does what is Right? And when Adam realizes what he's done and rebelling against God's good designs for his life and he realizes that that God's word was actually true, that what, what sin would bring is death, he runs and he hides because he's afraid that God is going to bring the consequences. See, and what Adam and what we tend to not realize is that God isn't just just, he's gracious. God is not just wrathful but Merciful. God is not just true, but he's good. And Adam runs and he hides from God and his sin because he thinks the only thing he's going to receive from God is the consequence. And he's right that there will be consequences for his sin. But he's wrong to hide from God because he only sees part of who God is. And you and I, we do the same thing. We do the same thing in our lives. You see, when I was a kid, I I went and I I hid from my dad in that closet because I was sure that the only thing I was going to get was consequences. And what I got in that moment was consequences, but also grace and mercy. And... For, for, for the gambler, or the shopaholic, or the, or the drug addict, you, you spend your whole life hiding your addiction from your family members, from your loved ones, and, and thinking that you can in vain hide from God as long as it takes. Because you, you don't believe that God or, or the people around you could continue to love you despite what you've done. And, and, and we continue to run away from God, to run away from the people we've wronged and hurt, and, and to hide because we, we believe certain things and we believe partial truths about who God is. Adam hides because he only believes that God is just and he doesn't understand that the best thing to do in the midst of his sin, in the midst of his brokenness, in the midst of his rebellion is actually to turn around and change course and turn back to God who is both just and merciful to run to God instead of away from him. See, we tend to think that God won't love us because of what we've done. We think that what we've done is so significant that we're not even sure that we should be sitting in a pew in a church right now. And we come into buildings like this bearing all of this guilt and shame because of legitimate wrongdoings that we've done in our past, and our past haunts us. Because all we see about God and other people is the justice part, is the judgment part. And today what I hope we'll see is that as God brings about legitimate, right, true, and just consequences for sin, he also brings about the hope of redemption, the hope of restoration, the hope of healing and grace. It's true that God will justly judge sin, but we miss that he's gracious and loving as well. And secondly, in addition to to hiding our sin, we also blame others for our sin. In verses 12 and 13, here's what we read. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And and you just have to wonder, like, in that moment, you know, does Adam regret what he's just said? Because I can tell you one thing, I'm sure that Eve never let him forget it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I mean, men, how many times in your life have, have you slipped and, and said, well, if you just would have done this, and immediately you regret what you just said, <laughs> because you, you, one, you know it wasn't true, and, and, and two, you know that you're never going to hear the end of that, because you knew it wasn't true, and you said it anyway. And, and, and I'm kind of reading this, and, I, and, I, and, and sometimes I read that verse, and it's, it's devastating, and it's also hilarious. I, it's devastating that, that Adam doesn't see his responsibility for his own sin and blames another person, the per- person that he's cl- closest to in life. And it's also hilarious because that's exactly what we do. I read that verse and, and I, and I kind of chuckle because A- Adam says, that woman, you know, it, it's her fault. It's all on her. And, and we do this. We do this often in life. I have to imagine that even God was sitting there looking and saying, dude, that was not a good idea, like, you know, and and, and not only does does Adam blame the woman, but he blames God himself. Did you see that in, in the verse there? God questions Adam, he says, where are you, you know, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. And so Adams in, in double trouble now. I mean, he, he has just blamed his wife for his actions, and he has just blamed his God for all of it. And and see, we we tend to blame others for our, our sin as well. We you know, whenever you come home and your four year old has has drawn this beautiful picture on your living room wall of his favorite superhero, you know, conquering Thanos, and and, and you're 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 questioning him. You're saying, what happened? And he responds with, I don't know, I just, I, I came in the room and I saw the dog sitting there and the crayons and, and there was this picture on the wall. I, I guess the dog did it, you know? And it's ingrained in us from when we're children. We blame others for the wrong things that we do because we're ashamed and we feel guilt and we attempt to run and hide from what we've done and to hide from the consequences and to hide from the people who love us, and to hide from God himself. And we blame other people for the things that we do. We, you know, our, our anger is always caused by the actions of someone we love. It's always his fault, or it's always her fault. If, if he wouldn't have done this, then I wouldn't have yelled at him. If she wouldn't have done that, then I wouldn't have gone out and done this. We always blame what we do on the people closest to us. It's because this is part of our fallen sinful nature. This is what human beings have been doing since the beginning is that we hide in our shame and we blame others for our actions. We blame our loved ones, our coworkers, our bosses, our friends, other people around us, no matter who it is. We, if we can find somebody to blame, we will. We blame people on a daily basis for the things that we're responsible for in life. And the sad part is that we don't just blame other people, we blame God. (laughs) The woman whom you gave to be with me. Adam isn't just blaming Eve. He's blaming God himself for the situation he's in even though God was the one who warned him about this, even though God was the one who delivered his word personally to Adam and spoke to him and and gave him good gifts and gave him everything that he would need and, and showed him the ways of wisdom and how to walk in obedience to him and gave him everything that he could need to find joy and satisfaction in life. And he said, this is the one area in which you'll find danger and destruction. And Adam took of the fruit and he ate and he blames god for the whole thing he says if you wouldn't have given me that woman this is all on you god i mean you you knew she would do this and so why would you give her to me and adam begins to blame god for everything in his life that has gone wrong and we do this in our lives as well. Our struggles with, with lust and marriage and finances, we begin to blame God for them. I mean, well, you know, we blame God for our financial difficulties. When things aren't working out, all of a sudden, even though, uh, even though we blow all our money on things that we don't need, it's somehow God's fault for the predicament that we're in. We, in marriage, we, we blame God for the destruction of our marriage relationship and our families, even though we've been sinning against our loved ones for years and we finally got caught. We blame God for our struggles with, with lust and desires and, and, and different things that we struggle with on a daily basis, even though he's offered to us true satisfaction and lasting joy in him. We blame God for our problems ultimately. We look at the pain we experience, we look at the sin that we struggle with, and we say, God, why have you made me this way? But look at how God responds to his people and their sin. In verses 11 through 13, uh, well, actually, go back to verse 9. We read, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then we read, he said, who told you? God's speaking here to Adam. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? See, in those few verses, we see this incredible thing about who God is because Adam and Eve have just sinned against him and run from him and hidden and blamed each other and God for what they've done. And God's response is to pursue them. He, he walks in the garden with them and, and he, he calls out to them, he says, where are you? Did you know that God doesn't ask questions, he doesn't know the answers to you? He's like a good lawyer. If you've ever thought about what a lawyer does, in the courtroom, they don't ask questions. They don't know the answers to you. Because whenever a lawyer asks questions, he's not asking questions to, to get to know the truth. He's asking questions to reveal the truth. He's asking questions to reveal the truth to those who hear it it's the same thing with what God is doing here. God knows all things. In Psalm 139, we read about God's extensive knowledge of us. It says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up, you understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day and darkness and light are alike to you. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. And so God doesn't ask these questions of Adam because he doesn't know the answers. God knows everything before it happens. God asked these questions to get Adam to see that he's in this place, in this position, experiencing these things because he disobeyed God's good will and words for his life. That's what he said, right? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? He's trying to get Adam to see why he's, where he's at right now. And God pursues us in the same way. He he comes after us. He doesn't just reject us and and stand far away when we sin against him. He pursues us in love, and he calls out to us, longing for us to repent and turn towards him. See, God pursues us in our sin, and he confronts us in our sin because he doesn't want us to continue to live in it. He doesn't want us to continue to have to experience the effects of it and the destruction and chaos that it can bring on your family and your relationships, on your career and your job. He wants us to turn to him and realize that he's both just and gracious. That he still cares for us even when we rebel against him, and he longs for a restored relationship with us. You know, I I, I used to think that God didn't really care about what I did. Uh, you know, when I, when I was younger, I, 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 I had all these concerns in life that weren't really that big of concerns at all. I pursued, you know, vain things like sports and relationships with girls and, and different things in life before I met Jesus. And, and I thought that my satisfaction and my joy could be found in that. And I didn't really think that God cared what I did. And when all of that crumbled around me, when I realized it wasn't sufficient to bring joy, when I realized that it was a shaky foundation for life to pursue things that didn't really matter that much, whenever I realized that I was missing the one thing that did matter, and whenever I entered into a period of significant depression in my own life, and I began to isolate myself and blame others for the things that I was experiencing and the the sadness that I felt, and I got angry, God met me in that place. God pursued me and said, where are you? God showed me that my whole life I had been rebelling against him and going my own way. God exposed and, and shone the light on the dark places in my heart so that I realized that he cared for me even there and even then. And he does the same thing with Adam and Eve, though he's offered them all the good things that they could possibly need in life. He pursues them and confronts them because he wants them. Secondly, we see that in addition to the, our responses to sin, there are consequences for our sin. Verse 14, the, the Lord God said to the serpent. So, so notice that uh, this is going to be the reverse order of the way things played out in the previous verses in 1 through 7. So, and how, and how God uh, c- confronts these three parties. He's going to confront the serpent, then the woman, then Adam. And, and previously, he had come to Adam first, then the woman, and then the serpent. And so the, the serpent in verses 1 through 7 had kind of subverted God's good plans and the ways he'd ordered relationships and, and the home. And, and he, had, he, he had gone around, around Adam who was initially entrusted with the responsibility of guarding the garden. And he had gone to Eve to try to get around Adam and, and subver- subverted that design of God. And, and then he had introduced temptation and evil into the world. And, and so God comes to the serpent first. He says, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see there's consequences for the serpent. The first consequence is that the serpent is cursed. The man and the woman, uh, we read, are, are not cursed. They, they have consequences for their sin, but God curses the serpent. And, and, and the serpent is cursed, so he, he, he's been introducing evil into God's good creation, and God responds uh, by saying, you're going to be viewed with contempt from here on out, and there's going to be hostility, and you're going to be a part of this spiritual war that's going to be waged and be long and, and devastating. See, the serpent is, is going to eat the dust from which God made human beings, the human beings that he came to tempt, to rebel against God. The serpent is cursed to slither through the dust and eat dust the rest of his life. See, elsewhere, this character called the serpent is described as a dragon. This, this magnificent being that has legs and, and wings and, and can run and walk and fly. And, and here, as a part of the curse for what the serpent has done, for what Satan has done in rebellion to God, introducing evil into God's good creation, he's now cursed to slither through the dust from which God made Adam and Eve. He's going to eat dust the rest of his life. He is cursed because of his evil. He will slither through the dust from which God made humanity. And then there's enmity, which means there's, there's hostility. There's going, there's going to be a war. This is the beginning of, of what we view as spiritual warfare, where there's this battle between God and, and his people and his angels and the serpent and his demons and those who follow after him. This is where spiritual warfare begins. This is where this battle of the ages starts. And if you think about war, it's hostile, it's bloody, it's violent, and it's devastating because someone wins and someone loses. And what we read here is that the serpent will have to engage in this long, hostile war filled with enmity, and he will lose. In verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And ye shall bruise his heel. Foreshadowing one day when the Redeemer would come and Satan would bruise his heel as he dies on a cross. And that very act where Satan thinks he's winning is actually his demise. And then we read there's consequences for the woman. And to the woman God said, "I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you." So, so what we see here is that ha- having children is going to be more painful. And, and this certainly means that, that the, the birth process, that as, as painful as that is, that this is where it began, that kind of pain that is intense and agonizing, and that this was part of the fall. But then we also have to think a little bit broader, because on a, on a day like this, part of the consequences of the fall is, is not just that having a child is painful. But that not having a child is painful. But that losing a child is painful. But that raising a child can be painful in a broken, fallen world. That part of the consequences for sin is that rearing children, birthing children, bringing up children, and and attempting to have children will all be complex and painful in a world in which sin has been introduced into it. It won't just be joyful. It'll also have pain as well. And on a day like today, we feel the incredible joy of new life, and we celebrate with moms, and we also grieve with those who have experienced the effects of the fall. We grieve with those who are hurting today because they have experienced exactly what God said would happen here. And we acknowledge that that because of sin entering into the world, all sorts of relationships in the home have been distraught and and devastated. We read, in addition to pain and childbearing, that. There will be this conflict in marriage. Your desire shall be for your husband or against your husband. That's the idea there. You read that same kind of language in the next chapter with Cain and, and his sin, uh, being uh, wanting him, wanting to rule him. It's the same wording there. There's this desire that wives will be against their husbands, and then we see, and he shall rule over you. See, this is... This verse is the reason that 100% of us experienced marital conflict in our marriage relationships. This is the reason that one-fourth of the women in any given church or community will experience some kind of domestic abuse. This is the reason that marriage is so hard, is because from the beginning, There's this consequence to rebelling against God in which we seek to have the last word. We seek to be in control in the relationship. We seek to be the one that leads and has the last say. And this plays out in all of our relationships. And we see that the home is devastated by the effects of the fall. And then finally, there's consequences for the man as well. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And so we see that the ground itself is cursed. So Adam and Eve were given authority over creation as representatives of God in Genesis 1 and 2. And and then we see that when they sin against God, when they rebel against him, everything that was entrusted to them is affected by their sin. Everything that was under their stewardship is affected by what they've done in rebelling against God's good designs. The ground itself is cursed. It'll bring thorns and thistles It won't produce the things that it should as they work it. It'll be hard and painful. We notice the ground is cursed and then life and work will also be painful and and futile. We we also have to notice that, that work itself is not part of the fall. It's not part of the curse. It's not part of the results of sin. Work was instituted in Genesis 1 and 2. But work becomes painful and futile in Genesis 3. Work was created by God as a good part of life. And then now, living in a Genesis 3 world, we experience difficulty at our jobs. Work is hard. Work seems monotonous and futile. And, and, and there's this characteristic about life in a Genesis 3 world where where it's, it's just futility. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes calls it vanity of vanities or meaningless, meaningless. As he's looking at life, as he's looking at the world, and he's looking at how every day you get up and you go through the same routine, and then you come home and you do the same thing, and then you go to bed and you get up and do the same thing the next day. And you do that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, until you return to the dust. And so God is saying to Adam, because of your sin, life is going to be painful, life is going to be hard, work is going to be difficult, and it's not going to be as productive as it should be. And then you're going to find that life is also futile in the sense that one day you're going to return to the dust from which I made you. And there's this devastating aspect that the fall brings to our world and our lives. But in verses 20 through 24, we see how God deals with our sin. So, so far we've seen a a few things that God has done. He's pursued us despite our sin. He has confronted us about our sin. He's brought consequences for our sin. And now, starting in, in verse 20, we read this. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And that verse should give us great hope. Especially on a day like Mother's Day. Because what we've just read about is how sin brought death into God's world. And the man names his wife Eve because she's the mother of all living, which means that life will continue, that God will continue to bring about life despite the fall, that God will continue to bring about hope and joy despite the pain. And then we read, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So we see that God sheds blood to make covering for our sin. And we think about throughout the Old Testament how this was what God's people had to do. They had to make sacrifices of animals like lambs in order to make covering for their sin and to to be reconciled to God. And then when we come to the New Testament, we read that Jesus the Christ is revealed as the Lamb of God who comes to shed his blood for the world, that he might reconcile us to himself, that we might have a restored relationship with God, that God has been shedding blood to cover our sins from Genesis 3 and ultimately in Jesus Christ These are some of the most devastating verses in scripture that we read because God's God's people, Adam and Eve, have just been cast out of his presence because of their rebellion against him. And if you read closely, the reason they're cast out of the garden is because God doesn't want them to continue to live in sin. He doesn't want them to reach out and take of the fruit of the tree of life and continue in this state in which they're in where they're separated from him. And so God gives grace as he judges his people's sin. He casts them out. He brings about the consequences for their sin in order that one day they might have a reconciled relationship with him instead of continuing their own way. And this is the, the amazing thing that we see about God in the cross, right? That God brings judgment on Jesus on the cross that we might receive salvation. And so God has brought about both judgment and salvation from the beginning, from Genesis 3. We see that God deals justly with all sin, providing hope to those who have suffered as a result of it. We, we see that God doesn't allow us to continue in sin and rebellion against him, that he wants a reconciled relationship with us. And then it's only fitting that we end our time together on Mother's Day by recognizing that God delivers us from sin through the offspring of the woman. That's what we read in verse 15, that there was an offspring coming that would crush the head of the serpent. And this offspring is Jesus the Christ, that he is the promised one who would come, that the second sin entered into the world, God promised a redeemer. And we read in verse 20 that that Eve would continue to to have children and, and that life would continue despite sin being present in the world. And then we read in the New Testament about another mother named Mary who receives a child from God. And that child's name is Jesus, which means God saves. And so... Moms, you have played an incredible part in the story of redemption. And we are so grateful for what God has done through mothers in Scripture, and we are thankful that God continues to do incredible things through moms today. And on a day like Mother's Day, when we look at the consequences of the fall, we celebrate because we have hope of deliverance and freedom and joy because despite the things that we experience that are painful in this life, despite the struggles with sin that we have, there is an offspring who has come and his name is Jesus the Christ and he has died and shed his blood as the Lamb of God to provide freedom, restoration and redemption for those who will trust in him. So would you pray with me? And, and today, if you're here because mom or, or grandma wanted you to be, but you, you haven't really given any consideration to this, this message we're talking about, I don't think you're here just because of mom. I think you're here because God is saying, where are you? And God wants a relationship with you today. And there is an offspring that has come through Eve and through Mary and his name is Jesus and he saves his people from their sins. And so no matter where you're at or what you've done today, God is inviting you into relationship with himself. And if you want to know more about that, please see me or Cameron or even somebody next to you after the service. We would love to talk with you about that and pray with you. Let's pray. God, we celebrate today, not just because of mothers in our lives who have been awesome and incredible for us, but God, we celebrate on a day like today because of the ways in which you have brought about redemption through the offspring of Eve and Mary, that your son came that we might have hope and reconciled relationship with you. And so, God, I pray for those who don't know you right now. I pray that they would see your grace towards them, that they would hear your call and respond. And I pray for those of us who do, that we would be reminded today of the amazing plan of redemption that you have had from before we ever fell into sin, and that we would rejoice in the name of Jesus. Amen.